Hi everyone and welcome back to another episode of Haunted History Chronicles. Before we dive into what is coming up today, just a reminder that the podcast also puts out weekly content over on Patreon in the forms of mini-podcasts, writings and lots more. It will also give you access to exclusive stickers and other perks. If you are interested in some additional content as well as supporting the podcast, why not head on over to our Patreon page at www.patreon.com forward slash haunted underscore history underscore chronicles. The link is also in the podcast description notes to make it easy for you. You will gain the entire back catalogue of materials as well as future content. And now let's get started with the episode. Joining me today is Dr Richard Sugg, an author of many books who was featured in the podcast before when he came to talk about mummies, cannibals and vampires and the history of corpse medicine. If you haven't listened to that podcast already, I highly recommend taking a listen. It was a fascinating discussion around this whitewashed bit of history. Today Richard's joining me to discuss something rather different. We're going to be exploring his book Fairies, A Dangerous History. How dangerous were fairies, you might ask? Well, in the late 17th century, they could still scare people to death. Little wonder as they were thought to be descended from fallen angels, and to have the power to destroy the world itself. Despite their modern image, the fairies feared by ordinary people were very different and caused them to flee their homes, to revere fairy trees and paths, and to abuse or even kill infants or adults held to be fairy changelings. Such beliefs, along with some remarkably detailed sightings, lingered on in places well into the 20th century. Often associated with witchcraft and black magic, Fairies were also closely involved with reports of ghosts and poltergeists. In literature and art, fairies often retained this edge of danger. From the wild magic of A Midsummer Night's Dream, through the dark glamour of Keats to the improbably erotic poem Goblin Market, or the paintings inspired by opium dreams, the otherness of the fairies ran side by side with the newly delicate or feminised creations of the Victorian world. Richard Sugg's book dives deep into the history of the many fairy terrors which lay behind Titania or Tinkerbell. And with the anniversary of Arthur Conan Doyle's book, The Coming of the Fairies, first published on the 1st of September 1922, it seems the perfect opportunity to dive deep into the history of fairies, the powers they were considered to have, as well as looking at their connections with ghosts and poltergeists, and of course examine the Cottingley Fairies, the incident that sparked Conan Doyle's book. So, let's get started. Hi Richard, thank you so much for being with us again today. The last time you were here we were talking about the history of corpse medicine and your book Mummies, Cannibals and Vampires. We're going to be diving into the world of fairies today, slightly different topic. Yeah, it's possible. Well, I think it is actually a stranger topic. That's a pretty weird one, but this is this is actually stranger still, and uh, perhaps got a bit more range out of the darkness, as it were. There's a lot of lighter areas in this one. Yeah, it was a fascinating one, and we're going to be looking at your book, Fairies: A Dangerous History, too. How is it that you know you came to want to research and write about that? Given that you know, as I said last time, we were talking about mummies, cannibals, and vampires. How did you end up? looking at fairies and the history of fairies 
Yeah, I'd, I'd been looking at witchcraft quite a lot, actually, in the, in the years before I started on that book, around 2016. And reaction came to me, having seen my work, and said, would you, would you like to do a book with this? They'd got a supernatural series. And I, uh, I thought, yeah, fairies are quite a lot more interesting than uh, people think. And uh, a lot of association with witchcraft, they were taken seriously, they were allies or sort of familiars of witches, allegedly, and they, uh, they, they were respected. Uh, they weren't really sort of obviously good or bad, they were powerful, like a lot of things in folkloric uh, or popular culture. And so I started researching and it was a beginning of a of a huge huge adventure i think the only bigger adventure really i've had is researching ghosts and poltergeists but actually there's a surprising overlap as we'll see there is this quite a genuine overlap and uh yeah if anyone finds this subject a bit weird and is scowling and swearing under their breath i don't blame them because i had no idea what i was going to find and it really opened my eyes across uh, several months and it continues to do so i um I was just uh, a few weeks ago at the sandwich shop getting some food and there was a chap there with his dog waiting outside having food at a table. And I uh, I spoke to him about what I did and uh, the fairies and I thought, poor chap's going to think this guy's bonkers. And he says, no, no, he says, um, I, I own a bit of land out West Wales by kind of Carmarthen. And uh, said so when I bought it, a woman came to me and said, uh, can I keep coming to this hill? I've been sitting here a long time. And I, I, I sit here to watch the fairies. And uh, he said affably enough, yeah, just shut the gate. You know, you can go and sit there when you like. He went out there and one evening he saw, he told me fairies. He, he was about the most mundane, um, no-nonsense sort of guy you could imagine. But he, he told me quite to my face that, that, yeah, he'd seen fairies dancing about in the in the grass on this fairy hill. And that, that starting was just about a month ago, I think. And I think that's what's I think most people will find quite surprising because belief in fairies and fairy traditions was once so important. It was so prevalent. And I think that's the kind of the place to really start. That's something I think to really help people understand just how important and prevalent that was. Um, you know, they, the belief in them kind of occupied every part of, of life, really. You know, they were considered something that inhabited the land below the earth the skies bodies of water and you see them cropping up stories of them and sightings of them in history cropping up in every part of the country but then other parts of the world you know it was really really quite embedded in people's consciousness both personally culturally and regionally do you want to just kind of explore that and explain yeah, that a little bit more? Yeah, thanks for bringing so that important. up because that is something I think is pretty little known. And really in uh, in much of Ireland, particularly in Scotland, in Wales, in parts of England as well, and from what we know, also according to um, Simon Young, who's conducted a global fairy census, do, do look at that if you if you put that in fairy sense, I think it'll come up pretty freely and availably all over the world as well um, in other versions. But yeah, um, fairies had a hell of a pedigree and they originally uh, came about like this. If you asked an elderly Scottish man around about 1900, he would tell you that uh, at the Great Rebellion, the angels, Lucifer and co, uh, were hurtling out of heaven uh, into hell 
and the father and son became concerned jesus told god you better stop this so they shut up the doors of heaven they shut up the doors of hell uh, but a fair number of angels got caught in the middle and as you say they were the ones that would later be uh, denizens of the the earth the air or the water this threefold division of fairies so what we've got here is this colossal heresy which repeats itself in different variations throughout extremely pious cultures whether they're catholic or they're protestant uh, religion is that uh, is the core of these people's lives but at the same time what startled me a great deal was realizing that this exists over and over again with magic and with heresies that would freeze the blood of of your local parson curate uh, vicar in, in whatever country it was. And um, one of the big ones, along with that foundational heresy where they came from, was that if children died young, then they, they weren't in heaven, they weren't in hell, they weren't in purgatory, they were with the fairies. The fairies had care of the afterlife. And it's, it's hard to think of a bigger heresy than this. And this was running on through the 17th century when in Cumbria there were reports of uh, people actually dying of terror of fairies through the 18th century uh, into the 19th century when of course we start to get the whole spread of uh, gentrification and uh, prettification of fairies in um, poetry particularly in art most especially these lovely gorgeously polychromatic images uh, by Fitzgerald and so forth sometimes Midsummer Night's Dream and even in the middle of the 20th century, there were many parts of Ireland where nobody for love nor money nor threats could convince uh, a team of road builders or house builders to build um, across a fairy path over a fairy tree or around a fairy fort or hill. And the fascinating thing is that we think now perhaps a little bit loosely, sort of whimsically, of a magical fairy place, perhaps in the woods, perhaps some little beck flowing down a hillside. Uh, and it's a solitary place. It's it's a place of wonder. Uh, a fairy place uh, in the old days was very different. The, the problem was finding a place that wasn't a fairy place because there was a kind of invisible uh, network or grid of fairy rights of way and artifacts all across your landscape in the countryside. So there were fairy trees, fairy thorns. There was a farmer in Ireland who supposedly cut down one of these in a rage when he was drunk one night and was found the next morning with his head turned around back backwards and people have stressed again that if you look at a map of many parts of Ireland you'll see roads continually running in fairly straight lines and then horseshoeing around uh, a fairy tree uh, there was a big uh, to-do about one of these in the early part of this century in Ireland where it had to be moved when a new motorway was being built and then you've got your fairy paths and in Ireland to the present day, I gather, you can still see houses with peculiar bits lopped off the sides. So there's a bit detached house. Um, there were no sort of building regulations really in uh, in the 19th or early 20th century. You, you 
basically decided where you're going to build your house. Um, you staked out the plot. You got all your friends and a fiddler and you built uh, and then danced and then built and then danced to the sound of the fiddle until you got finished. So the problem was not the bureaucratic authorities. The problem was the fairies. If you happen to have accidentally built your house across a fairy path, uh, you might get poltergeist racket going on. And this is where I say that the fairies overlap with poltergeist and ghosts in a curious way. We can just say this is one underlying thing, but it would be called fairies and you've got fairy problems. You consult the local wise woman and say, oh, yeah, well, look at that corner. You built that right across a fairy path. They don't like that. So you get a mason to slice the corner off the house and free up the fairy path. In other cases, you've got people, uh, again, with a detached house. They've got back and front doors giving on the fields and they throw them both open at a certain time of the evening to let the fairies invisibly march through. Or alternately, they call all the children in for a fairy curfew because the fairies were were on the march. Um, a fairy fort was uh, not far from the house of Bridget Cleary and Michael Cleary in the notorious case uh, in which she was actually murdered by her husband under the belief that she was not his wife. She was a fairy changeling. She was apparently suffering from some degree of mental illness. And the fairy fort was one of the factors that uh, gave suspicions to Cleary. And he, in fact, was outside with a knife at the fort waiting for his wife to be given back to him for a couple of nights after the murder, which became a, a cause celeb uh, across the world shortly after that. So, yeah, that's a very brief summary of how people's worlds were full of fairies. And we're, we're very much in the minority uh, in, in respect of this looking strange to us. It was it was powerful. It was supernatural, but it was kind of very ordinary as well. And, you know, the example that you just gave of Bridget Cleary is is quite a horrifying case. I mean, it's considered the last witch killing in in Ireland. But for Bridget, she received no burial. So to this day, she has no tombstone. She has an, anom an anonymous grave where nobody knows where it is. Her husband, who obviously went to trial, served very little time and then was able to get on with the rest of his life travelling to Canada, I believe. He, he, he was... He was, yeah, I think he was sent away or went away, didn't he? I think he immigrated. Yeah. Um, I, I, as far as I gather, um, one of the reasons why he wasn't actually executed was that he genuinely believed that she was a fairy changeling. You know, after the, the, the there was a fair deal of incredulity and fury from the, the kind of educated upper class uh, QCs and so forth. But eventually, the, uh, the, the the judge became convinced that. Yeah, he, he there was he, merit to it. Wrong, but he but he he believed what he said actually, um, and that's certainly plausible from from what I've seen. I think there were other factors, you know. That there's a very good account of it uh, by Joanna Book, but um, she gives other factors to do with sort of social jealousy and the old guard and the new guard um, in in different generations. But yeah, that was certainly you know at the heart of it that uh, that she was not his wife in fact i think he said that she was taller than his original wife and again this is what makes this so fascinating really i mean you mentioned the crossover with ghosts with poltergeists but this is something that really crossed over with so many other kind of magical elemental type figures you know hobgoblins leprechauns um selkies silkies brownies i mean the list goes on and on and on and and to some extent these things now still feature very much um, in people's consciousness with slightly higher kind of regard than fairies. Fairies seem to be kind of bottom of the pile when it comes to a lot of people's perceptions about what it means to, to kind of think and believe in fairies or to hear stories of fairies. 
But at one point, that crossover between all of these different types of magical creatures was really, really very much up there, and you can't really distinguish between them. And so, you know, when we're talking about brownies and selkies, we're really talking about fairies, aren't we, essentially? And that kind of notion of what a fairy could look like then compared to now, again, is just mm. night and day. I mean, yeah. totally night and day. Yeah. Let's just kind of explain and, and talk about yeah, that, that difference. That's, that's something I've got used to, but people perhaps aren't familiar with that. That it, it, in, in some ways, fairies were rather like... Um, the the traditional image of the devil who was a master of deception and of change of course and so fairies could look like almost anything and what i said about you know fairies being everywhere potentially uh people would see um a fox uh, out in the countryside and in certain circumstances they become convinced it was a a, a fairy fox uh, they could fairies of the air could just look, look like flies and of course, the fairies of the water were the traditional um, silkies, selkies, the seal wives, and this famously was the the myth of uh, you know seal becoming human. The um, the uh, man on land that took this to his wife kept the skin, and as long as she couldn't get back in her skin, she couldn't get away from him. But there are other stories less well known in Ireland, parts of Ireland on the coast. You know, people would suddenly suspend seal hunting, which was obviously quite a big part of local ecology back then, um, on the belief that uh, such and such a seal was somebody's grandfather in actual fact, and so they couldn't kill it. So, yeah, the, um, the different kind of... Um, categories that that filled the world um about the one thing they weren't likely to have i suppose in the case of flies you say they they had uh was wings so it wouldn't really look like uh your modern kid or particularly girl would want it to look like um the, the brownie thing is an interesting one because they seem to have had this role of uh, doing household chores for you if you treated them nicely and this whole idea about putting out bread and milk at night for them and even having a kind of fairy curfew indoors when everyone go to bed quite early and uh, leave the fairies to have their meal by the by the fireside. There's a case from, I think, the 1980s, but it's certainly well within living memory, where a couple, the Boltons, uh, moved into a new house. And I think they were renting the house, the point being that there were various tenants um, who told different stories about place had friendly brownies and they weren't a problem they mainly did nice chores for you as long as you humored them okay so they've been forewarned about these brownies and found that yeah odd things happened their their washing got folded up and put away without them doing it things got moved about in the kitchen and presently the um wife of the of the couple got pretty annoyed with uh things not being arranged the way she wanted them in the kitchen and uh, swore about this, shouted about this, I'm not sure. But there was such a storm of poltergeist violence that evening. They called the police and abandoned the house and spent the night in, in a hotel. Uh, a few months later, the next residents of the place said it was all it was all fine. You know, that sometimes the brownies opened the windows for them, did this and that, but it wasn't anything problematic. And there was a similar case, uh, a place called Denton Hall, um, around the uh, turnover of the 19th into the 20th centuries. Uh, the place was first inhabited by a couple of elderly sisters uh, who lived there, all quite happy about the silky or brownie that 
left little bunches of flowers around for them, um, made up the fires, swept the crate and so forth. Um, but a family with a young son and the young son being a kind of typical age for being a poltergeist agent, unfortunately moved in, I think it was around the Second World War. And there was such a storm of violence, again, hammering noises towards the son, particularly his bedroom, that they gave the place up and, and moved out. What's interesting about this is that Denton Hall is quite definitely known to be haunted. There, there are abundant detailed stories from the days when it was a big socialite venue with uh, actors like Charles McCready and co staying there, kind of salon style as it were. But recently I, I rang the place now under I think the National Trust and they said yeah quite quite matter of fact yes it's still haunted you know it's not a big deal but but things do happen uh, that we can't explain so yeah in, in both of those cases uh, you've got a kind of you know almost neutral being entity paranormal creature that can tilt very violently either way or, or certainly you know tilt either way whether it's doing pleasant chores for you and being your domestic familiar or it's trying to terrify you out the house and succeeding yeah it's a it's again just a really fascinating kind of um thing to explore and to talk about and and it's certainly something that i want to really kind of pick your brains about a, a little bit later because yeah. it was one of the the most profound things that i found about the book um it was just so eye-opening for me especially someone very much interested in the paranormal to kind of re-examine some of the things that I think about the paranormal and look at it again with just a slightly different perspective. Before we head back to the podcast where Richard is going to explore the connection fairies had with witches, the dead, poltergeists and ghosts, as well as looking at modern fairy sightings, and of course the Cottingley Fairies. Just a reminder that if you are enjoying the podcast to check out the links in the description. There you will find the social media links for the podcast as well as guests. Following the podcasts and guests over on Instagram, Facebook or Twitter is a great and easy way to support what we're doing. If you want access to behind-the-scenes news, teasers and spotlights and features, why not sign up for the Haunted History Chronicles newsletter over on the website. Again, the link is in the description below. And now, let's get back to exploring the dangerous world of fairies. Some of the dangers of fairies and things that they could do, you know, you mentioned the kind of the aspect of poltergeist activity and how similarly these, these things cross over. And one of the quotes that really stood out for me from the book just kind of, I think, really epitomises so much of what... I kind of took from the book and it it was this it was once it was dangerous not to believe in fairies later it became dangerous to believe in fairies and yeah. you know I think that shift that cultural shift is really quite staggering but to really understand just how far it it kind of moved from thinking that danger you know fairies were dangerous and to not believing them to not think about them in that way was dangerous to suddenly it being dangerous to to think about them in that way, to really understand that mindset, that shift, we've really got to understand just how how dangerous people believe them to be. And I know you mentioned already witches and their connections with witch trials and changelings, but it goes so much deeper than that. You know, at one point, the dangers of fairies were something pretty much everybody was going to believe in, right? Yeah. Thinking that they could <clears throat> cause illness, cause harm, cause death. They would 
you know, be blamed for famines. They might be blamed for things going wrong, other things going wrong. And just a whole host of other things. Basically, there was nothing. Their powers were kind of limitless, which is what made them so scary, you know, so potentially dangerous for people and what they thought that they could do. Do you want to just, again, just kind of explain that a little bit more? Because I think it's so important to understand that, to really understand how different the modern perception of the fairy with the little wings and the very tiny body is so starkly mm. different. Yeah, as you say, they were, to excuse the tail end of COVID here, I'm sorry. So, yeah, they, they were a scapegoat. And it, what fascinated me about this research, uh, alongside research on vampires uh, and research, of course, on witches, was that it was a matter of choosing your scapegoat. Mm. And the witch and the vampire were very diametrically opposed because one of them was already dead uh, and the other one was likely to wind up dead unfortunately for being your scapegoat for your animals being sick your crops failing your weather being bad uh, your children being ill or dying of of cot deaths um, and then you've got the fairy which is partakes of, of of the supernatural nature of both of those to some extent but is again peculiarly kind of poised um powerful rather than uh, good or good or evil uh, and it's got this curiously kind of heretical quality you know that the fairies are everywhere as you suggest they're they're omnipotent according to some people they could destroy the world if they wanted to one informant said they um were omniscient as far as you could tell as well because people would always refer to fairies euphemistically or comp complementarily uh, on the belief that they were listening to you although you couldn't see them so you've got this kind of godlike quality about them and as with vampires as with witches there was pretty much no um problem in your house your fields your weather uh that you couldn't blame them for and the one that i think focuses the fear of them best of all is the idea of the fairy changeling it seems like a kind of mythical whimsy when it's there in uh, midsummer night's dream but in fact, this this was uh, a subject of terror and horror, terror for them and horror for us reading about what they did to um, their own children on the belief that they had actually been switched by the fairies. The, the most kind of detailed basis for this, a um, woman called Susan Shun Eberly uh, studied a lot of the fairy changeling cases and found that children toddlers perhaps um who suffered from something called pku i won't try and pronounce this whopping great scientific name but pku uh, is the standard acronym for a condition where the baby is born normally looks normally and behaves normally but after a few weeks or months they start to look kind of oddly shriveled in appearance and um they cry a tremendous amount they they are constantly hungry and the moment you stop feeding them they start crying again so you've got a basic social problem here in a house with perhaps you know 10 14 children not a huge amount of food and you've also got the belief that fairies tend to swap boys particularly now pku picks on boys and <clears throat> also ones with certain kind of genes so your classic fairy prize for them to pinch off you is, is a blue-eyed boy. And in fact, this is how PKU tends to manifest in people of those, those genes. So, yeah, you've got people 
putting their poor toddlers um, over hot fires on seashores while the tide washes over them, bathing them in poisonous foxglove essence and, and generally tormenting them, but with a kind of awful twisted love in the belief that this is not their child and that if they torment them enough the fairies being rather like us kind of mirror image in many ways and that's what's distinctive about them unlike witches or vampires the fairies love their children too so they're not going to see this happening and they'll they'll give you yours back and and, and take theirs before you kill it and unfortunately they did kill these children a tremendous amount this tended to happen in less educated uh, and poorer households but it it almost happened apparently to um i think it was the sister of the folklorist westrop who was a upper middle class anglo-irish character and you know you've got of course nurses and nannies whatever you want to call them uh, in wealthy families like that and they might have these beliefs and it was the the, the nurse i think who decided that Westrop's sister was not Westrop's sister anymore and put her out on the doorstep for the ferries to take her back. I mean, she was recovered in time, but but that was probably not the only case. Uh, one of the most memorable and awful cases, which I think is Westrop recounts, was when a young boy of sufficient age to understand, he was five, six, something like that, maybe older, um, overheard people discussing the fact that he was a fairy changeling and what could they do about it and he probably knew the awful kind of tests and torments to which he'd be subjected and he apparently died of terror of, of what was coming to him before anything did actually happen so yeah um at the kind of heart of fairy darkness this is this is some of the darkest stuff of all these people loved their children as much as, as as we do but um they also feared uh things which they didn't didn't understand and you know it says a lot about kind of understanding of medicine and illness disease <coughs> mental illness at the time because you know when you don't have a name for something or know how to treat something it it's very difficult and can be very problematic for these families like you said who may be living on the breadline with a large number of children to feed to really understand how and what's happening and when you've got learned doctors questioning what's happening you can understand how those with none of that scientific medical understanding at all could very easily think about the changeling here and 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 kind of see that as something of a positive thing in some ways because that meant that their healthy child would be under the care of the fairy and this sickly child was not theirs. Um, so the, in a kind of strange way, like you said, that was a way of kind of having their child continue to be loved and taken care of, that they were okay. And kind of a strange kind of duality to it, I think. Yeah, that psychology, I think, has been quite well delved into by Eberly. And she talks about the guilt that people might feel, you know, why was this baby born normal? What have they done wrong that it was now... Uh, behaving like this and <clears throat> so yeah they they had a kind of outlet for this guilt in a sense and the other point you make about you know disability and being a bit different being a bit strange being a bit inexplicable something I realized when studying uh, pretty much every paranormal phenomenon certainly vampires witches uh, and and go and um, fairies was that it was never a good idea to stand out 
uh, traditional culture that was that was risky no you got to blend in you cannot be part of the otherness can you and well I, I think you know what I realized with this is we look back on these people and it's become the kind of go-to cliche for you know ridiculous superstition somehow it's the absolute past even if it was only the 19th century and um in fact, this this is not remotely the case. You know, people now have wildly superstitious, madly irrational beliefs that are emotionally important to them. And the new witch is the immigrant. Mm. Um, you know, people's just visceral, idiotic racism uh, about anybody from another part of the world that comes into Britain. It's it's equally as irrational in many ways. It doesn't have the same kind of supernatural colorings, but you know, on this basis. England has committed an act of national suicide in the last few years. And, you know, I think it's important to to also note that, you know, when we're talking about some of these superstitions that they had and beliefs around changelings, that this is not something that is 200 years ago, 100 years ago. You know, we're talking up until the 1930s, you were writing in the book about how, you know, there, there were parts of Ireland where, they would put pepper into the mouth or the, the nostril of the of the infant to force it to sneeze because the mm. belief was that as soon as the child sneezed, that meant that they were safe from the fairy changeling, you know, from the fairies and becoming a changeling. And so, you know, you can see how this has really carried on for far longer, I think, than people might recognise. Yes, I, I, I was startled by that when I first did the research and I, I think it was around the 1950s that there was a big controversy about a new housing estate being built on a ferry fort and they just the, the building crew just simply wasn't going to do this as i say it's just it's really quite profound when you dive into it i mean again you mentioned witch trials and i think we can all recognize and we might all be familiar with how kind of that other world that witches were believed to kind of be part of the devil um, going to places like, you know, if you think about Blockula, you know, where these women might go to in order to commune with Satan, with mm. fairies, with these other being creatures. You know, we can see that crossover. Yes. But again, the extent of that, I think, might surprise people. And one of the things that really blew my mind was um, you referenced Joan of Arc and how during during her, her you know, her trial mm. that during that interrogation, they took a real interest in her kind of childhood home and how when she played there as a child, there was a fairy tree. And so you could see, even in her trial, where she was being tried for heresy, that beliefs in fairies and her connection possibly with the fairies and the fairy world was somehow part of that too. Yes, Yes, I think, you know, back in the 15th century, they, they, they took things particularly seriously and found them particularly dark. It does seem that Joan of Arc um, possibly had some kind of strange paranormal powers of her own, actually. In reality, it's very interesting work done on her by Anthony Peake, if anyone wants to look at that, and I recommend it strongly. But, um, yeah, the, the, the fairies had this dark power and people would uh, allegedly consort with them and come back with, you know, remarkable esoteric knowledge in medicine in herbs um there were anonymous characters like this in ireland particularly but there was most famously um biddy early uh, absolutely extraordinary character who um 
was associated with uh, with with the fairies, but I think also, and various people have recognised this, uh, did actually have some kind of genuine psychic powers. She was some kind of psychic healer, and she summed up this uh, <clears throat> ambivalent relationship with uh, religion and magic that um, so many ordinary people had. She was being denounced ferociously from the pulpit by the local clergy in her lifetime. She uh, would have a, a minister trying to whip away uh, her visitors to her cottage. I mean, she had a queue of dozens of people come for cures um, at her, her humble little cottage um, at times. And uh, the clergy thought this was all dark, superstitious, demonic. I suppose you could say they thought it was interfering with their prerogative as well. Um, but a staggering number of priests actually attended her funeral when she she died, and she didn't take money for her cures. She took just presents of meat or whiskey. Uh, she would say, "Sometimes I can't cure this. It's not something I can cure. You have to try something else." Uh, so she did seem to be sort of genuine at her own level, but she did actually seem to uh, have powers which cured people somehow. Matthew Manning would be a, a parallel in the, the modern day in terms of a psychic healer. And um, <clears throat> yeah, she was reputed to have some kind of level of British royalty driving right over into the wilds of the wilds of Ireland to uh, see her. And she certainly, you know, the reports are to be believed, they're quite detailed. She knew what had happened to people. She knew what they were doing, you know, miles and miles away from where she was and she'd report this to them to their to their astonishment and again I, I it's one of the things that really fascinated me reading your book that kind of duality of of how people associated with fairies could be treated you know you you spent time talking about the fairy doctor these prophetic type people for whom would have visits from people from much further afield who would travel great distances to consult with them on information about loved ones who were missing and so forth and pay huge amounts of money at times when they would have found that very difficult mm. you know when ireland for example with the famine yes. um, i know was some something that you mentioned and yeah. if they've lost their breadwinner and are concerned that you know where is that person to then spend a huge amount of money to consult with one of these types of, of people was no kind of small thing to part with such huge amounts of money to do that. No. And so you can kind of see the reverence that they have, but also no, at the same right. time the persecution. It's, it's so strange. Yeah, it, it, it's important to remember that these people were practical, I think. You know, they, they, they didn't go a long way and wait a long time outside Biddy Early's cottage um, for nothing. It was because she had a reputation that she could do this. And with these cunning folk, whether they're cunning men or cunning women, um, of whom there'd be one or two within your reach, probably, for uh, for most of history, I think some of them really could do something strange. Um, they had abilities of what we'd now call remote viewing, which which does seem well attested. There's a startling number of uh, of stories right now uh, of people that can know where a stolen object is. Uh, this fascinating case of a stolen harp just a few years ago, uh, which was recovered when somebody. Uh, 1500 miles away <coughs> said yeah i know i know it's still there i can tell you where it is etc so the tricky thing with the, you know what's now sort of lost in the mist of folklore is how many of these people were actually 
gifted with these these strange psychic powers, which which do seem to still exist, and sometimes used by the the CIA or or the uh, the FBS or whatever it might be um, for for covert spying operations. And I think you know you really did kind of add that element in the book, explaining how you know these were people that were very much sought out for the talents that they had, the things that they might be able to give insight to and yet at the same time the kind of real human suffering that could be brought about was you know profound you know when we think of the changelings these children who suffered years of abuse um people who were persecuted as witches thrown in prison executed you know whatever whatever kind of part of these these types of examples and evidence you look at you can see that element of human suffering whereas for the fairy the kind of the elemental part of it, you know, there wasn't anything you can do to them, but for the person, the human, very much so. Yes, uh, it's, it's been stressed, of course, that Ireland, uh, which has been abused, you know, beyond all measurement, really, by the English down to the present day, uh, psychologically, physically, and um, you name it, um, and, and most of all as being, you know, the home of superstition, mm. of, of, of Catholic uh, darkness and uh, magic and all the rest of it. Ireland had had no witch persecution, basically. Um, and there must be a link there with the fact that its uh, supernatural familiar of choice was was the fairy not 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 the witch in actual fact so yeah it's it's a very tricky area to pick your way through you've got a tremendous amount of actual ignorance um suffering cruelty whether it's you know uh malicious or simply misguided uh, and yet you, you have also got the lack of the taboo which we've now created around uh paranormal entities you want to call it call them that that um there's abundant evidence that people do experience ghosts they do experience poltergeists so i was a bit fed up of being indoors during the heat wave trying to research so i thought i'd take a little bit of research outside into the park and i took the very simple blunt plain approach of just wandering up to people sitting, sitting in the sun and saying do you believe in ghosts and about 70 80 percent of them not only said yes but sat me down and told me this story that story the other story and these were things that added up with what i with what i knew so we've got here a kind of strange uh open secret about which people are worryingly embarrassed actually mm. and you know what you said about it being a supernatural danger and now a social danger that that applies with ghosts with poltergeists who seem to keep some kind of strange kinship with with fairies and this in lots of ways particularly across the last two uh, and a half years might well be the biggest thing that's ever happened to somebody. You know, it might be the evidence that their dead relative is still around somewhere and is still kind of watching over them, communicating with them. But when you speak to those people about this, they do not talk to people about it. They do not talk to their closest friends about it a lot of the time. Uh, and it, it's impressive how we've battled and cut through so many taboos just in the last 20 30 years but we've really created another one in in that area about what you could say is the biggest question of them all mm. and like i said i i thought that the kind of question about ghosts poltergeists and the fairy and the 
the kind of the crossover between them was startling for me. And just that notion and that concept that, you know, fairies were linked to the dead, as you mentioned earlier, you know, caring for those that had passed, um, caring particularly for young children that had passed. You know, there was um, beliefs that those that had actually passed away, those were fairies returning. And, you know, one of the, one of the sections that you wrote about was how they were believed to bring the dead back to the living. And you, and you kind of cited cases of, of precisely that, where people claimed to have been returned years later after they'd been declared dead and buried to be, you know, a particular person returning to their family. And you also cited cases of premature burial. And that's a fascinating one for me, um, having looked at that on, on the podcast before with Sarah Blake from Hushed Up History, where, mm-hmm. you know, there were cases of people who, had clearly been prematurely buried, had sat up in their coffins or sat up and escaped from their graves and then were stoned to death or whatever Mm. else Mm. because of the belief that they'd been returned in this manner and somehow that was taboo and wrong and it was just fascinating. Yeah, yeah. Uh, You know, if you you woke up in your coffin um, in a lot of parts of Europe, or Russia uh, 100 years ago, you just, just keep quiet and wait till you've suffocated. It's the best fate in, uh, in many territories. And so having just kind of mentioned that connection with death and dying, I think we really do have to explore the connection with ghosts and the poltergeist because for anybody that really is interested in the paranormal and believes in ghosts or is researching or questioning that kind of side of things, when you look at the evidence and the example of the types of activities that were being reported that fairies were engaged in the similarity with poltergeist activities and hauntings or ghost manifestations and ghost stories is so strong that to not see how implicitly linked they are is is baffling to me and, you know, that alone just warrants more research and more kind of people looking at some of this history of fairy belief and fairy culture and fairy traditions because of that connection alone. Yeah, um, there's there's a, an extraordinary case in Ireland um, where uh, a woman called Biddy Grant, uh, she was 86 when she was interviewed, said, that she habitually saw fairies and she believed them to be the spirits of our dead friends. Those are, those are her words. And most memorably of all, she stated, I once touched a boy of theirs. and He was just like feathers in my hand. There was no substance in him. Now, what's extraordinary about that is that she doesn't quite say that a hand went straight through him. She says he was just like feathers in my hand. Um, there's uh, a famous case, which you, you might know, and a lot of listeners probably will know, of a, a woman called Emily Sargay, um, who in around the mid-19th century worked as a teacher at a girls' boarding school uh, in Central Europe. And she had a problem, which some teachers would consider to be a blessing, but she considered to be a curse, which she was literally appearing in two places at once. And there would be her, and then there would be her double. And at one point, that's an incredible, breathtaking moment, two rather daring girls uh, who'd seen her appear at the front of the class when they knew that she was actually in reality out in the gardens and see through the windows. They went and they put their hands in this apparition and stated that it felt like gauze or muslin. 
So in either case there, with people who couldn't possibly have communicated to get their stories straight, you've got pretty much the same thing, like feathers in my hand, like gauze or muslin. Now, the reason I make quite a deal of this is because I'm lately reading a lot of books about out-of-body experiences. And this is the kind of furthest limit of uh, fury or incredulity for certain listeners, perhaps. Some listeners may have had the experiences themselves, and I don't blame you if it's very hard to get your head around this, but a number of people do genuinely seem to have gone out of their bodies time and again, and they've gone into other dimensions. The, the basis of this is that those dimensions are right here, right now, and it's just a, just a matter of different frequencies. It's just a matter of bodies at different densities, so that the um, second body that comes out of yours when you're sort of sitting comatose there in your house but flying across other dimensions the second body can go through windows walls roofs ceilings etc and th this makes a certain sense if you've got uh, different frequencies different dimensions different densities so that's the kind of furthest twilight zone limit i suppose of of this kind of this kind of thing but yeah there's there's simply the basic um connection that if you ask people in ireland uh, about the banging hammering noises the things being thrown around in the kitchen etc etc it was the fairies doing it anywhere else it was the poltergeist and poltergeists clearly do exist it's, it's no good you know just uh saying that people are mad or attention seeking far too many people of every possible social type temperamental type etc have, have talked about poltergeists so yeah something something is is there i'll get i'll, I'll get on to if we get time um an extraordinary book i think i touched on at the very start called the boy who saw true and this this child in the victorian period had access to pretty much all of this from other dimensions it was as ordinary to him as uh walking the dog is to to anybody else when you look at just ordinary kind of examples of fairy like manifestations you know just unkind of source noises, inexplicable movements, being there suddenly disappearing, um, invisible pinchings, beating, starting fires, the kind of the Machiavellian playful side of it, but then also possibly being helpful. You know, these are all things that you see associated with poltergeist ghost-like activity. Mm. And, you know, just think about the word, sprite, spirit, poltergeist, Geist, yes. yes, you know, ghost, you know, you can see the connections in language. And for yes. me, one one of the kind of the profound kind of things that I thought about whilst reading the book was just how similar they were and kind of tying that with what I knew was happening in the Victorian period with, you know, if you think about the rise of spiritualism and how researching the paranormal ghosts, poltergeists, these kinds of these elements of parapsychology were really much more kind of prevalent than they ever had been, but it added a credibility to it. And, you know, science, something science-based, something research-based. And at the same time, we're being introduced to language for the first time. I mean, poltergeist didn't exist in the English language before 1848. It was introduced by Catherine Crow when she wrote, you know, The Night Side of Nature. Yeah. Before that, we didn't have that word. So suddenly knowing that we have these words this language it kind of raised the question of well were all were these things there before but now suddenly we have a frame of reference for it and um 
is that the term poltergeist that's now coming, you know, kind of has made it more popular to use that term as opposed to fairy. And that was the kind of the, the thinking that I was having, you know, is it just the same thing, but being classed as something different? And yeah, kind of having that moment was just quite profound for me, that thinking. It, it, yeah, it, it is um, hard to keep up with the facts you think you know what's going on i started off thinking poltergeists were just uh a very weird biophysics of some troubled teenager who feels better when some glass is shot across the room and hit the wall and they're almost literally letting off steam but there's nothing actually supernatural about it i realized eventually when my own friends were telling me about ghosts in their houses that i had to take a different view and you keep learning you keep getting new uh, complications and strangenesses coming at you if you keep reading or just keep listening to people. And I think um, one of the big things with this is a, a bit of a fad for paranormal television and gadgets and infrared and electromagnetic meters. And they have yeah. their, their virtues and their uses, these things. There's certainly been some good science done on poltergeists. But actually, a big thing that doesn't happen enough is just to listen to what people tell you. Yeah. Uh, and and perhaps ask them questions, but but to listen to them and to listen to them in a way that doesn't make them feel stupid, um, written off beforehand and so forth, because then they will tell you absolutely astonishing things. And what's not the least astonishing is that those things match up time and time and time again. I can't keep track of the number of people that have told me these stories. I was in um, Barcelona airport before all the plague came down on us. I was coming back from uh, Barcelona in October 2019 and waiting for the boarding queue. I got talking to a young woman in the cafe and we were talking about what we'd been doing and what we did. And she'd been taking photographs around Spain. And I said, you know, I write books and I've done this and that. But my most interesting research is ghosts, poltergeists. This is the weirdest of all. And she was quite quiet and sort of non-committal. I thought, Perhaps, you know, thinks this poor fellow's mad. I'll just listen quietly till he goes away. Anyway, then she presently piped up and said, well, that's interesting because um, when I was a little girl and she meant kind of one, two, I think, <clears throat> she said, this old lady used to come and read to me in bed. It was all just perfectly normal and pleasant. It happened each night for quite a while. And uh, aged about 18, she said to her uncle, yeah, this old lady used to read to me in bed all the time at night. I don't know who it was. Uncle said, was it her? Points at the photograph. Yeah, that was her. She was the one. Um, well, that was your grandmother and she died before you were born. I mean, I got that story in about eight minutes, you know, mm. someone who I'd never met before. And um, there are there are countless of those stories waiting out there if you just just get hold of them and ask the right way and listen the right way if you like you just go to the pub and ask them is it haunted and about 70 80 percent of pubs tend to be to some some degree or other so yeah it's a big strange open secret i think that's what i find the oddest thing about it is this great open secret of the absolutely weird right under your nose right under your ears and from for me i just think it's fascinating to see how how these two elements of the paranormal kind of diverged um you know with with kind of the rise of spiritualism it being part of the national discourse it really kind of helped elevate some things and um made it more scientific but for fairies it was something more open to ridicule and i think that kind of touches on that quote that i 
read out earlier mm. from your book you know it just wasn't okay to talk about fairies and tied into that time frame i think you know with photography being introduced yeah with the birth of cinema when you look at some of the images that were being put out mm. you know women with women on film with their fairy wings dancing obviously supposed to be very much fairy like yeah. um you know it kind of it made it much more romantic and whimsical and something less serious, whereas ghosts and poltergeists and talking about that type of activity was something based on in science with with parapsychology and the rise of spiritualism. But fairies, no fantasy, childhood stories, and all of those. Things. Yes, although there there was just exactly a hundred years ago, or, or almost exactly a hundred years ago, September um, nineteen twenty two, there was a, a, a place. Uh, about six foot tall, uh, in which all of those extremely divergent, seemingly incompatible elements met. And that place was Arthur Conan Doyle. He uh, he lost a son and a brother in the First World War. He had a tremendous appetite, despite his seemingly ruthless scientific for forensic rigour uh, embodied in Sherlock Holmes. He had a tremendous appetite for mystery and romance. And it's sometimes forgotten that he didn't just produce this great myth of Sherlock Holmes. He produced the myth of uh, what would become Jurassic Park, his dinosaur romance, The Lost World. It's a terrific story uh, about a place where dinosaurs still exist uh, in around 1910. And so he had this appetite for romance, wonder and mystery. And this was fed um, um, after the First World War when he'd lost a son and a brother to this ferociously kind of utilitarian, masculine, mechanised slaughter by these two girls from Yorkshire, um, Frances Griffiths, uh, aged 10, and her uh, cousin, Elsie Wright, um, who was um, 16 in, in 1917 when this whole story of the Cottingley Fairies kicked off. The, the girls, the cousins, were just playing, messing about in the beck at the bottom of the garden. Um, but they managed to persuade Arthur Wright, uh, Elsie's father, to lend them his new camera, Midge camera. And they came back with an extraordinary photograph uh, of uh, Francis looking uh, across the grass at various dancing fairy figures. And this could have just ended there. There were a couple of these photographs in 1917, uh, July and September they were taken. But they came to the attention of the local Theosophical Society, uh, spiritualism being big, you know, across Britain at this point, as you indicated. And they then came to the attention of Edward Gardner, who was a friend of Doyle. So uh, in 1917, uh, the girls were just out to trick their parents, respectively. And in 1920, when uh, Doyle got Gardner to go up and get more photographs and three more were produced, five altogether, um, they were out to trick the world. I'm quoting Simon Young here at the Fairy Census, who's pinpointed that this thing happened in two different phases. And whatever really happened, we'll never quite know. But I think it, it got out of control. It got out of the control of these two young girls. Um, and it became too big for them to stop. So that first off, it was in the Strand magazine uh, in Christmas 1920. So it was a bit of a sensation then. But next off, you've got Conan Doyle's actual book. And he talks in The Coming of the Fairies in, in Autumn 22 uh, about 
this Victorian science which would leave the world as cold and hard and bare as a landscape in the moon. He talks about jolting the material 20th century mind out of the ruts in the mud. And, you know, you can hear overtones here quite easily of the devastation um, that was created across France and Belgium by the war. But I think also you can hear again that yearning for something that isn't kind of pinned down under the hard, cold grid of, of scientific analysis. And here it was, you know, to the nth degree, you'd got these two seemingly innocent young girls. I mean, he was fooled here. But to him and Gardner, um, they they were young, they were innocent, and they were taught constantly about if we don't get more photographs quickly, the girls are going to grow up, they're going to fall in love, and then it'll all be over. Mm. Um, in actual fact, of course, they weren't innocent. Um, they were they were very clever, and they they had, and this is a kind of interesting footnote to the whole sort of power of fairies in traditional culture uh, they had a tremendous source of power it was like i can't remember if it was francis or elsie but one of them would later remark sort of well into the maybe 60s or 70s i've heard somewhere that someone in the world makes a reference to the cottingley fairies at least once every hour i mean listen to that this sounds like somebody kind of counting their hits on the internet mm -hmm. before the internet or computers were ever dreamed of uh, so they had this tremendous source of power that kept smoldering on in this sort of cat and mouse game and media were interviewing them periodically you know right into the 70s uh, about this and they never quite uh, came down on one side or the other and um, Conan Doyle seemingly went to his grave um, in 1930 believing in this. But one reason he did believe in it was because uh, spiritualism and the survival of his son, his brother, uh, were bound up with, he believed, other dimensions. And actually, what's interesting is although he fell for the biggest hoax of the century, uh, essentially, I think under underneath it all, he got it right that in fact, you know, when a fairy pops out of nowhere and disappears into it, it is coming from another dimension and going back to it. The same is the case with ghosts, with poltergeists. How do they get through? Why do they get through? These interesting questions. Um, but they're, they're both coming from other dimensions. And there's certainly more than one, much more than one, um, from what I've read so far. And if anyone wants a book, which is an absolute riot to read it's utterly hilarious it's written in kind of phonetic spelling and it's also a great kind of social comedy of the appalling madnesses and hypocrisies of the victorians anonymous account uh, of a psychic child the boy who saw true which wasn't published until um, sometime in the 20th century i think uh, but this this account rings very very true that the, the child is constantly seeing ghosts he says don't sit in that chair uncle hugo's sitting in it uh, you'll sit on you know he's, he's uncle hugo's dead um he, he's baffled that um other people can't see ghosts he thinks his sister's playing tricks on him he sees people's auras and when i say that this is a great victorian social comedy i mean the family is quite well off but of vastly richer uh, relative bachelor relative dies and leaves them his big house in Belgravia and lots of money uh, and he says it's very odd because everybody goes about in mourning and looks very sad but their auras look really happy um, so yeah this child sees auras he sees ghosts and he sees gnomes and elves and fairies in the garden in the Welsh countryside when he goes on holiday uh, he has visits from dead relatives and if you walk one place where it's kind of all there and it's spoken out of the mouths of babes and sucklings that is that is the book that could well change your mind if uh 
if you're open-minded at least. The cutting leaf fairies is a really interesting one to look at because it is much more complex, I think, than people realise. And it kind of reminds me of, you know, the Fox sisters and the rise of spiritualism, you know, just these young girls perceived to be very innocent who something gets started and it just gets bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. But there is a mystery around both of them in the sense that, yes, they, you know, in both cases, you've got admittance of, well, this wasn't accurate. This was something that we we staged. We, we, we kind of created this hoax. But in both cases, you've also got elements of them saying, but it still happened. You know, for the girls and the Cottingley fairies, you know, there was one of the sisters who, who said all the way up until the very end that she still had seen something. And so, again, it just opens up that question of, well, does it mean that something didn't happen at all? Or was there still some element of truth? Truth, I think that's the kind of the, the mystery that will continue and will have people wondering forevermore. Yeah. Just the fact that some parts of it weren't real, does it mean the whole thing was made up? As you say, it's surprisingly complicated and quite hard to to unpick. And it, it, it's, it's a very rich story. Francis, uh, it was, I think, who told Joe Cooper, the, the best biographer of this story, that, yeah, she saw something very strange uh, where there was no general breeze but just one willow leaf was shaking uh, down by the back there and as she watched it uh, I think it's supposed to have been before the photographs were taken this this case anyway she she watched this little fairy man materialize and stare at her for a little while before he disappeared and one of the other uh, reporters I don't think he was pulling his leg he possibly could have been but um, a forester who was a, an ex-wrestler was a pretty you know hard-headed uh, solid kind of guy um, told Joe Cooper that he saw something out in the woods uh, up in Yorkshire uh, of a fairy type and he said well, I didn't sleep for the next few nights after that and if we get time certainly there's some very very uh, practical no-nonsense military types that uh, that saw saw things um of, of a fairy kind in other contexts um the richness of this story at another level i love is that um it was kind of real in a way that you know wasn't actually a fairy creature that appeared and did things and made a leaf shake or whatever but but had a reality that was very very powerful um for both the cousins and it um it gave them this feeling, I suppose, of secret satisfaction for decades after Doyle had died and they'd grown apart and so forth. And amongst various ironies in it, the younger by some way, by about six years, was Frances. But she would state uh, to Cooper, oh, um, Elsie was much younger than me, essentially. You know, she used to play with my dolls. And in fact, Frances came from this quite glamorous upper middle class household in South Africa. Her father was a, a senior soldier and they had servants. They would go to the opera. She would wear a little fur cape she was very proud of. And then they came to uh, austere uh, wartime Cottingley and they were sharing a bed which sounds all sort of romantic you know cousins sharing a bed listening to the back down below but she complained about this complained about the horridness of black bread uh, and basically a lack of glamour so what does she do in keeping with uh, in in kinship with Elsie but make her own glamour out of cutouts from a picture book and of course they were at the time uh, derided as looking suspiciously Parisian and up to date with their bobbed hair um, and another wonderful irony was that it was 
having you know fooled their parents to say nothing of Conan Doyle and all the rest of them, um, Frances was caught out by uh, her own son who spotted uh, <laughs> these images that she'd used in another version of that book uh, and said to her, look, you better come out with this or I'm going to shop you if you don't. So she then had her hand forced, went to Cooper and he got this ominous phone call and there's something you need to know. Met her in a coffee shop opposite Canterbury Cathedral in I think this was 1981. And um, she said, um, looking at him with a wry smile, um, from where I sat, I could see the hat pins holding the figures up. Conan Doyle conjectured that these were fairies' navels. And um, she said, I'm amazed that anybody ever took it seriously. And, and certainly Cooper had taken it very, very seriously. Talking of hard-headed military types, he was a war hero. He he fought in the RAF. Uh, and yet he he did this research to a large degree because he, he wanted to believe uh, in the reality of the fairies. And he said his whole world shifted under him and he was never the same again. In fact, his, his children would, would stay quite recently that he had a nervous breakdown basically after she came out with it. Um, so the, the, the truth came out properly in the papers in uh, 1983 and the times compared um, these girls to uh, Bailey and Litchfield or in fact said that Bailey and Litchfield didn't compete with them really so again that source of incredible power uh, that they'd got and the reality of this the fact that you know when something has lived long enough in enough people's minds and you could say the thing same thing about religion uh, it becomes real it has a it has a reality and a power to it and this was summed up very neatly by Elsie, who was furious with Francis, uh, and said to the papers, I'm sorry somebody has stabbed our fairies to death with a hat. They, they were alive until until the early 80s. But the funny thing was they were still alive, I think, in many ways after, and probably still are now, you know, 100 years after Doyle's, Doyle's book. Uh, it was in the late 90s, I think it was about 98, that Mel Gibson, who'd made a, a film, fairy tale about the case, trying to buy the original camera, mm. uh, original midge camera and jeffrey crawley who, who then owned it uh said look if you raise me this amount of money half or a third of what gibson's offering it can stay in britain and it, it did um there was a, a crowd of i think two thousand people at the uh bradford museum chanting fairies coming home so by this time it had become a kind of british national treasure you know it was associated with the first world war but it's associated with yorkshire a very kind of powerful county in uh in the uh, British imagination uh, for all sorts of reasons. And it, uh, it, it, it couldn't be let go and it, it, it probably never will be in actual fact. No, I think it's part of the enduring aspect of the story. It's, I think it's just going to run and run and run even though the people involved just are no longer with us. It's a really intriguing one that I think if people haven't heard about or looked at in more depth, that they really should, especially with the kind of the anniversary September coinciding with, you know, Arthur Conan, Arthur Conan Doyle's book coming out all those years ago. It's, it's one to really kind of invest some time in if you are interested in the paranormal or just fairies or just anything about this kind of topic, just to kind of have a look at and see. Yes. Also, if you do, sorry to butt in, but while I remember, if you do run a bookshop anywhere near Cardiff, let me know if you'd like me to come and talk about the subject, because uh, it's the last chance to uh, to really make use of the anniversaries. There's been, you know, three, mm. uh, but this is this is the last one going by in September. But I think alongside that, for people to kind of look and really recognise that 
we have so many modern um, fairy sightings and there are people really starting to research and look into this and and carry out lots of different projects which is really quite fascinating and exciting I think I mean just thinking about you know things like the Woolerton gnomes in the 1970s um, just really interesting intriguing different events and things being talked about and and looked at again which is it as I say it's really exciting and I you know I can think of people like Joe Hickey Hall who who runs the um, podcast modern fairy sightings but she's doing this project where she's collating examples of sightings from people all over the world you know there's so many books being written about it now I mean Joe Hickey Hall herself contributed to two that I can think of looking at the Woolerton gnomes and mm. the book fairy folk so you know there's an awful lot of new material coming mm. out about modern fairy sightings all the time and so if people are interested it is out there and it's out there in more ways than people might think really yeah the Wallerton one is terrific I think because that kind of playfulness of them you know zooming about in little kind of noddy cars and so mm. forth um, in, in a pretty public place mm-hmm. um, and the children being grilled you know over and over again at school by the head teacher I think there were tape recordings of what they said uh, they, they 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 stuck to their story and the the guy um I don't think we mentioned him in the course of this, but uh, a guy called Hodson, uh, who was uh, instrumental in accompanying the girls in in 1920, I think 1921, um, he was a psychic and he's written his own book on uh, fairies. And he, Jeffrey Hodson, yeah, it was summer 1921, he was, he was up there in Cottingley. The girls thought he was a phony, uh, as they stated, but... I'd look for yourself at his work, actually, if you can, because Hodson talks about seeing gnomes and fairy creatures all over the place. And he talks about them making themselves something if they want it. Mm. Now, this I, I would sound completely nuts to me if I'd heard this kind of 10 years ago. But he, he's, he's got a pair of boots on and he sees these gnomes making themselves boots like his out of thin air and pulling them on with great satisfaction. If, if you read enough about out-of-body experiences and people like Robert Monroe, uh, William Bullman and so on in other dimensions, they all say the same thing, which is that other dimensions respond to thought in a way that uh, our own world doesn't, if only it did, you know, if the right people could think the right thoughts and sort this mess out. But in these other dimensions, you think about something and it, it takes you there, it puts you there. Thought creates things. And so, yeah, these, these you know, little funny gnomes creating themselves cars and zipping about in them. There's quite a few other stories about fairy cars, fairies shooting about in little kind of UFO tennis balls and so forth in wonderful books, Seeing Fairies, again, edited by Simon Young. It's a big treasure trove of of fairy sightings. And, um, yeah, in terms of, you know, very no-nonsense men of the world seeing some kind of fairy creatures in around about 1901, time of the Boer War in Gillingham in Kent, young boy, uh, he was about six or seven then, I think, used to every night go to be put, be put to bed by his mother and sit there with his, lie there with his nightlight. And every night, hordes of fairy soldiers, about 
eight inches high, would, would march from left to right, always from left to right across his bedspread for quite some time. Um, there would be wonderful military music. It was much better than anything he'd heard uh, in, in this life. Now, you can see that during the Boer War, a kid in that age would want to believe about fairy soldiers. That kind of fits culturally what you'd expect. But if you then overlay with the fact that somebody in another dimension wants to please him by showing him the kind of fairies he'd like, you get another level of, uh, of possibilities uh, again there. And this man was Victor Purcell. He would later be a colonial administrator in what was then Malaya. Uh, and he would later still be an Oxford Don in history. It might have been Cambridge. There was another character who um, who was an Oxford Don and saw fairies or heard fairies. Um, but yeah, he was about as worldly as you could as you could get. And another character in Wales in the mid later 20th century was one day fishing for trout uh, quite on his own in a in a stream uh, in open fields and he was casting away uh, enjoying his fishing uh, summer day I think it was when suddenly he heard this voice not far away down the stream uh, shouting at him catch them Tommy catch them Tommy I like trouts and gabbling away in English but with a a Welsh accent turns to see this strange looking character, quite small and maybe about five foot tall, elderly, uh, human, humanoid, if you like, um, a beard. Um, I think he remembers the color of his trousers and shirt or roughly how he was dressed. Um, and he got quite cross, he like being disturbed at his fishing. Where the hell did this guy come from? And uh, he says something like, yeah, OK, hang on, hang on, I've got to catch it yet got his line entangled in weeds so turned his back on this character uh, once he got the line free turned around and this figure had disappeared in a few seconds in completely open countryside there was nothing to hide him there was no way he could hide uh, he said his heart missed a beat uh, this man whose military tone you can kind of hear in the account, first-person account, uh, was Commander Tommy Powell. And as he says, most memorably of all in this pretty snarling account, says, how did he know my name? <laughs> Which he did. Um, so, yeah, those are just two of, uh, you know, absolutely huge range of, of, of sightings, um, every possible place, every type of witness, and, and every type of fairy as well. You know, ones that are not very nice, they're pretty ugly, that are rather sinister, um not many disney type ones but um no thankfully <laughs> big range yeah it is and again i think that's why it's so exciting to see so many people looking again at this because it it does ask that question though is this a, a cultural re remnant or is it something real and if it's something real is it just the same kinds of behaviors you know as i mentioned but just now being referenced with different terminology you know is this just something that has always existed and and therefore look at it again really think about it and see it and and be open to kind of what it might be that you're kind of looking at don't be so closed-minded and think that the disney version of of tinkerbell is is it it's not and we can see that the more you look at cases and evidence and eyewitness examples and multiple eyewitness examples in some cases it's fascinating it's so open it's so rich and, you know, now I think is is pretty exciting because, as I said, more and more people really are starting to look at it. And, you know, your book is definitely one that I would signpost people to to kind of start that if they're interested. No, that's great. And it's appreciated. Most people, actually, you know, reviewers who got in touch with me have been very 
pleased to have this connection made you one or two who just sort of troll troll you and you know get furious about it and i can i can see this because there's you know there's no way for you to fit this information into what you have made a system of knowledge you know when that happens we realize how much we rely on smoothly slotting a piece of incoming data into this system we've created by the time we're 25 30 35 whatever uh it is and so when something smacks you in the side of the head like that uh it's irrational and you respond irrationally you get angry or you laugh or you do a bit of both you know but those are actually irrational responses which fit the supposedly irrational nature of nature of this of this unacceptable piece of data but i do think that when i've talked about taboos and i was challenging taboos you know it really was a long way into my lifetime i grew up with jimmy savile who's terrific fun lovely character on the tv when i was a kid um you know for a long time after i was grown up it was unthinkable it was inconceivable that somebody like that with that status and the kudos of the bbc could have done what they did but they did it and it took a kind of critical mass of enough people having the courage to talk about it which which changed things and changed things you know multiply across the world through to the hollywood scenarios and me too and i, I do think there's a a similarity there. i don't make that point lightly but when you've got something awful happen to you, it's the worst thing that's ever happened to you. And then no one believes you. And not only do they not believe you, but they give you a great lot of abuse mm. for daring to be so mad, stupid, neurotic, uh, attention-seeking, uh, a liar in short. And poltergeist cases can be the very worst thing that's ever happened to you uh, if you get a poltergeist harassing you for 10 years as has happened to Keith Linder uh, in Bothell, the Bothell, Bothell Hell House is a, a seminal case of our century, or you just get a poltergeist that starts fires, you know, mm -hmm. um, yeah. it's pretty rough. It will burn your house down eventually. And, you know, again, just incredible to chat with you. I mean, it, it's really one of those topics that you could just keep going and keep going and keep going because there's just so much to it. I mean, it's just so intriguing. And so, like I said, if anybody hasn't, read your book then they must take a look at it because it's really really worth reading it's so insight insightful and it covers the whole history so you get a really good understanding of the historical context all the way through up until now um and so i think it would really kind of open some people's eyes so take a look if you haven't thank you and uh, i'll say goodbye to everyone for now and thank you richard for your time thank you thanks bye everyone If you like this podcast, there's a number of things you can do. Come and join us on Facebook, Instagram or Twitter. Spread the word about us with friends and family. Leave a review on our website or other podcast platforms. To support the podcast further, why not head on over to join us on Patreon, where you can sign up to gain a library of additional material and recordings. And in the process, know you're helping the podcast continue to put out more content. On a final note, if you haven't read it already, then you can find my piece In Search of the Medieval in Volume 3 of The Feminine Macabre over on spookeats.com or via Amazon. Links to the book will also be in the episode description. Thank you everyone for your amazing support. Mm -hmm.